They are our 11 warriors. No, they are the 11 warriors. The most disciplined and the toughest damn dudes you're ever going to be around. Welcome into Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined by Griffin Strom on what is undoubtedly a somber week here in Columbus as Ohio State suffered its second straight loss to Michigan on Saturday, this time by a score of 45 to 23. Certainly not what we were expecting when we were talking about this game last week. We we both said we didn't know who would win. We thought it would be a close game. It could go either way. But to see Ohio State ultimately lose the game by 22 points, certainly not what either of us were expecting. And certainly uh, a loss that's going to uh, linger and sting for a long time for Ohio State and its fans. Because after last year's game, so much build up to this year's game, uh, the idea being that Ohio State would had learned from last year and that they had put 364 days of effort into trying to play better against Michigan last year and ultimately did did not achieve those results on Saturday. Yeah, Dan, and, and you talk about some of the storylines coming out of last year's game, which were, of course, the, the the weather conditions being terrible in Ann Arbor. A lot of talk about is Ohio State's team built better suited for a, a better weather game? What would happen in that matchup if it was played in better weather? You, you can't give that excuse this year for Ohio State, right? Because the weather for a late November day in Columbus was was pretty excellent on Saturday. Also last year, you'll recall the talk about the flu outbreak for Ohio State, CJ Stroud losing his voice, a lot of players like missing practice and stuff. There was a lot of talk about that last year. No inklings of that necessarily. And you have to talk about the fact that Michigan was, was Blake Corum did did get a couple of snaps in that game. Mike Morris, I think, played a, 11 snaps for Michigan on the defensive side. Those are two of their best players right there who were you know, limited in that game. So it's not as though Ohio State had some huge handicap in terms of health that Michigan wasn't dealing with. So for all those reasons, it was a, a pretty thorough and sound result there that there's not going to be a lot of excuses that you can really give for it for Ohio State. Yeah, and it was... It was a weird game because if you, if you just looked at the overall stats of a game, I mean, until Donovan Edwards' second long touchdown run at the end of a game, Ohio State had been outgaining Michigan for the entire game. But really, the big thing that swung this game away from Ohio State were the explosive plays allowed by the Ohio State defense. Five touchdowns of 45 yards or longer. Four of those were 69 yards or longer. And when you give up plays like that, it, it's hard to win the game. I mean, you you look at it defensively, again, gave up five long touchdowns, which led to most of Michigan's points. And then offensively, only scoring three points in the second half, just on both sides of the ball, just not good enough performance particularly in the second half. And it, it felt to me like one of those games where, you know, early on in the game, o Ohio State looked like the better team. And Ohio State had a chance to really seize control of a game and start to pull away. And Ohio State let Michigan hang around. And then once Michigan hit landed a couple punches, we, we, we've heard Ryan Day talk about getting punched in the mouth and, and fighting back and, and, and all that. But it felt like once Ohio State took a few punches, 
like they didn't they they weren't able to punch back like it, it was a snowball effect where a few things went right for Michigan and then eventually that that snowball just kept getting bigger and bigger and by the fourth quarter of a game it it, it was an avalanche and and was ultimately able to pull away with a win yeah, Dan, at halftime, I, I really thought two things could happen because like you mentioned, statistically in a lot of areas, Ohio State was really outplaying Michigan in that first half. They just couldn't capitalize on a lot of opportunities. And I was thinking at halftime, okay, Ohio State's only up three. Michigan starts out with the ball. Is this going to be one of those games where you know Ohio State's really going to be kicking itself for the, the opportunities it didn't take advantage of early? And then when the momentum swings, Michigan could really get out in front. That's what we saw happen, but I thought it might have been the case that Ohio State might just continue the trends we saw in the first half, but then end up actually capitalizing on some of those opportunities. And it didn't happen. And like you mentioned, it wasn't last year. It was the the defense and then the run game, right, where the, the two big scapegoats. But really, in this game, it, it was the defense, the offense only scoring three points in the second half. I mean, I, I think the, the offense in the second half of the season here since the, the, the bye week has been a lot more inconsistent than I think a lot of us would have thought it would be, especially after seeing the first six games for Ohio State. But I think really you kind of have to start with the defense, Dan, right? Because that is where Ohio State made these huge changes, you know, overhauling the defensive coaching staff after last year's game. And you end up at the end with the Jim Knowles defense and everything like that, which has looked improved from for, for much of the season, of course. However, at the end of the day, still giving up more points to Michigan than the Wolverines scored in last year's matchup. And we did talk about it all year, right? That I, I I said it throughout the year that my biggest concern with this team was that the pass defense was going to come back to bite it in a big game. And that's exactly what happened in this game as J.J. McCarthy threw for 278 yards with three touchdowns of 45-plus yards. So just some major breakdowns in the secondary that, that led to those plays. But I, I think certainly there were some bad coverage busts. But I put a lot of it on the scheme, truthfully, because, you know, watching some of those plays, I mean, you look at the first touchdown, they're, they're, every defender every defender was within six yards of a line of scrimmage. And so basically, Cam Brown's on an island there where when he misses that tackle, it's over. They're going to score a touchdown. And, and that's how most of these plays were in this game, that Jim Knowles was playing so aggressively that if there was one breakdown, that was it. Like they were gone. And but Jim Nail Jim Knowles has been lauded for that aggressiveness. It's one of the reasons why he was hired at Ohio State. But I think he was too aggressive in this game. I mean, I asked him about it after a game because one of the comments he made over the course of a year, I don't remember exactly when he made it, but it stuck with me being asked about giving up big plays. And he said typically his philosophy had been to hold opponents to five explosive plays or less. Well, this game showed the fault in that theory because five explosive plays were the reason why Michigan won the game. And so I, I think if you're Jim Knowles, you, you've got to go back to the drawing board after this one, and you've got to reconsider that philosophy a little bit because, I mean, you know, you just look at the plays that were given up. I mean, when, when you're giving up long touchdowns and plays that are starting on the other team's side of a field, like, and I, I just think the balance there was not right. It's Yes, you want to be aggressive, but I feel like, with a lot of these plays, Ohio State was being needlessly aggressive to have nobody back deep to to try to stop these plays. And so I think certainly you look at the first 11 games of the year, 
you could absolutely say Jim Knowles, the defense improved. I mean, if you look at the stats, they're still pretty close overall stats to those top 10 defense marks that they talked about going into the season. But I think everybody would agree that when you perform like that, you give up 530 yards in your biggest game of the year, then you're not really a top 10 defense. Yeah, Dan, and I have to say that when I think about this game, the two late huge touchdown runs by Donovan Edwards are are almost like an afterthought for me when I'm just thinking about how the game played out because it just felt like by that point, they were were late in the game. It felt like the game had slipped away from Ohio State at that point already. It was a one-score game on the first one, though. Like the second one, I agree. The second one, I agree, because I think at that point, after CJ had thrown the interception, I think at that point, the game felt pretty much over. But the first one, it it, it was an eight-point game. And, and I, I to me, I viewed that first one as really the dagger. I think, like, I agree. I think the second one, it was kind of the game. The game felt like it was already over. But the first one, if Ohio State comes up with a stop there, Ohio, Ohio State still has a chance to come back and win the game. That That long touchdown run was really the dagger. Right, I agree. But, but I also think that just the, what we had seen from the Ohio State offense in that second half, I didn't even I didn't feel confident in the Ohio State offense's ability to even tie things up there if they had not given up that first touchdown run. So the Ohio State defense only allowed 10 rushing yards, I believe it was in the first half. So if if you look at it through that lens, they they were doing a good job, like we said earlier, in, in several statistical categories. We really have to give credit, though, to, to J.J. McCarthy. And you talk about the the aggressiveness of the Ohio State defense, and they were getting close to McCarthy on a lot of those plays. And McCarthy's just his his elusiveness, Dan, and his mobility, his quickness to be able to to escape danger out of the pocket and things of that nature. I mean, he created some big plays on a lot of plays like that, where he had to escape danger with with Ohio State's vaunted defensive line getting after him there deep in the backfield. And we we wrote about it in the lead up to the game, like the Michigan passing offense was supposed to be the the weakness of the team, right? It came in ranked, I think, 99th in the country in terms of average yards per game. JJ McCarthy. He just wasn't he he didn't have to do all that much, Dan, for the Michigan offense early in the season to rattle off those first 11 victories because the run game had been so strong. So then it was for Ohio State, if you can shut down the run and make J.J. McCarthy have to make some big plays, is he going to be able to do that when he hasn't necessarily done it consistently all year long? And I think the answer was when McCarthy was asked to do more, we showed or he showed a, a version of himself that can get the job done in that regard. Yeah, we saw Ohio State have some issues all year when it played against uh, more mobile quarterbacks. That seemed to be a, a failing of of this defense in year one under Jim Knowles. I mean, he even acknowledged that because he wants the defensive linemen to be aggressive as pass rushers, that could leave a, leave them susceptible to more mobile quarterbacks. And so we had seen them have some issues with that in previous games, and I think Michigan certainly saw that coming in, and 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 they used that. To their advantage with getting McCarthy outside of a pocket and and making big plays. And so, I mean, I, I think if you just look at the the past defense overall for the year, I mean, to me, I mean, the three best quarterbacks they've played in some order would be J.J. McCarthy, Talia Tagovailoa, and Sean Clifford. And Ohio State's past defense did not play well in any of those games. And so I, I think the past defense stats were, were always – misleading because they they think they really had so much to do with the fact that Ohio State played a lot of lousy quarterbacks or quarterbacks that just aren't good enough to challenge a team of Ohio State's talent and I think that when Ohio State had to play better quarterbacks we we saw that pass defense 
get exposed. And so certainly that's that's one of the things that y- you look at coming out of this game is what's wrong with the pass defense. I mean, I mean the pass defense has been a pretty recurring weakness for Ohio State in, in recent years. And so that's certainly something that I think you look at when you start thinking about moving forward from this game is how, how is Ohio State going to get this pass defense fixed? Why when you're recruiting five-star defensive ends and high four-star defensive backs, why are you having these repeated troubles in, in pass defense? And so I certainly think, you know, I, I had thought coming in that like if, if Ohio State was going to have a downfall this year, that the pass defense was most likely to be culprit number one. And I think it was in this game. But you bring up a point, Griffin. You had no confidence when Ohio State was down by eight points that the offense could score a touchdown. And so let's let's talk about that because that is very much an indictment of an offense that was supposed to be the best in the country this year. And 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 they couldn't score a touchdown in the second half of the biggest game of the year. And again, I think it becomes back to a question of execution versus scheme and and play calling. And I think probably all of those things are are at fault to some degree, but I mean, it just felt like the offense just, just never clicked in this game. CJ Stroud put up good numbers, but it just felt like he never, he never quite got into a rhythm in this game. And and ultimately Ohio state just wasn't able to sustain the kind of drives it needed to stay in this game. Yeah. The, the offense, it just was not sharp Dan. And there were a lot of kind of self-inflicted wounds there as well, because you, you talk about some of those costly penalties for Ohio state that stalled drives. I know there was Paris Johnson and Dewan Jones, both got flagged. You talk about the, the drop passes. I mean, Cade Stover had a few of those, both of, of Stroud's interceptions were on tipped, tipped balls by Ohio state pass catchers there. I, I think you can point to that, that fourth down play. When was that in, in the second quarter, the first quarter for Ohio state, when, when Ohio state tried to go to to Cade Stover there on the kind of one-on-one on the left sideline. He c- could have made a, a nice grab with the the left hand. Doesn't come up with it, though. There was another one to to, to Stover where he, he could have hauled it in, in the end zone, but you know the Michigan DB made a nice play to break that one up. Just just not sharp all around. The execution wasn't there in the play calling, as you mentioned. I think that, that, that pass to Stover, that fourth down pass to Stover was one early on where people were, were questioning the play calling there. And I know it's going to be, was, was, Assuredly rolling their eyes at, at all the, the screen passes as well that were mostly failed for Ohio State, given that, that was the that's been a trend here in the last several weeks for Ohio State. But but Dan, I mean, what did you think of the play calling? And do you feel like some of those those criticisms as far as Ryan Day and his play calling are are a concern is more of a real thing than maybe we were willing to admit a few weeks ago? Yeah, I think it is. I, I think it is. I mean, I, I mean, admittedly that when this came up earlier in the year, I mean, I'll admit that I scoffed at it. The idea of Ryan Day should give up play calling duties because, you know, Ohio State's offense has consistently been one of the best in the country un- under his leadership. And so when I first heard those criticisms, to me, my, my opinion was that's kind of ridiculous because, I mean, look at how good the offense has been. But I, I think after this game, I, I think I'm more on board with the idea of it. Maybe it is time that, that Ryan Day needs to give up offensive play calling and he needs to focus on being the, the CEO of a program because it, it it's clear that something's not working here. Something's not working well enough for Ohio State to be able to perform at its best in the biggest game of the year. And I do think it's valid to say when, when you're the head coach and you have all these other responsibilities on your plate, 
can you really fully commit yourself to offensive game planning in a way that allows you to to come up with the game plan you need for for a game like this and i know some people have pointed out that if you you just kind of look at recent teams that have won the national championship none of those teams have had a head coach calling the offensive plays themselves and so I do think that's something that that Ryan Day needs to consider, should consider, whether it's time for him to relinquish those responsibilities. I I think when rewatching the game, like I do think like there were definitely some some questionable play calls. Like I also think like like watching like I, I when I was rewatching the game and I'm watching, I'm like, man, another screen pass, another screen pass. Like I mean, there, there were there were a lot of them, and and it's clear that it's clear of it going into the game their plan was to get the ball on the perimeter and and they thought that was going to be their key to success and, and it just didn't work but the, the way that they, they thought it was going to work and it seemed like they weren't really ever able to adjust when things weren't working i also think some of that was just cj stroud checking down i think michigan was consistently dropping seven plus guys into coverage and i think the coverage on michigan's end was really good and I, I mean, there were a lot of times where, you know, CJ Stroud had a ton of time to throw the ball and he just never found anything downfield and then would eventually end up checking down. And so I think it was partially play calling and, and, and partially execution. I think one thing that I thought of, you know, again, while watching this game and I, I had brought it up before, I mean, we even talked about it last week about why would Ohio State want Jackson Smith and Jigba back? Well, we saw why Ohio State would have really wanted to have Jackson Swift and Jigba back because I think Jackson Swift and Jigba gave Ohio State something in a short and intermediate passing game that Ohio State just doesn't have with the other receivers. I mean, Emeka Buka has some of that, but he doesn't have it to the same degree as a Jackson Smith and Jigba does. And Marvin Harrison Jr. is phenomenal, but I don't know if they necessarily had that same changeup off of that if they would have with Jackson Smith and Jigba. I think Julian Fleming's another downfield guy. He doesn't necessarily have that short intermediate skill set. So I, I, I think that they were missing something there with not having JSN. And I think I just think that it just seemed like all, overall, like they just were never able to find a rhythm in that game. And that, that does ultimately start with the offensive game plan and, and the play calling and, and figuring out what they need to do better in that regard. Yeah, I know Ryan Day had talked a lot this season, especially early on, about how much he he liked the the physicality of Ohio State's wideouts in terms of blocking Cade Stover, th- throw him in that mix as well. But it seemed like on, on some of those screen plays and even in even in the run game, those guys weren't sealing those blocks in, in, a, in a way that was going to give Ohio State the success it was looking for. And you talk about the play calling as well. And I know we remarked it at some point in the game where CJ Stroud, I don't remember what exactly the number was, but he had thrown a lot of passes and still didn't have 100 yards in the game. And it felt like Ohio State, they just weren't pulling the trigger on, on, on those downfield passes that that we've seen Ohio State be able to convert on and really open up games. Abuka ended up with a 44-yard play, Harrison with a 42-yard play. Both of those guys finished with a lot of yards, but I, I still don't think we, we, we saw the Ohio State passing game at its full potential in terms of play calling and execution. And like you said, I, I, I definitely thought that that was a big factor that it, I feel like it surprised CJ Stroud when he had so much time on, on several occasions to, to pick and choose where he wanted to go with the ball. And he just had nowhere to go with it. And it ended up in some cases, there was one play in particular. I remember 
it was like a, th- a three yard loss on a, on a check down he threw after having like all day to throw back there. And I think maybe that's why you get some of the continued criticism about, well, maybe in those situations you take off and, and try to pick up some some yardage with your legs. I know people have been posting screenshots of, of the open, the, the green grass in front of CJ Stroud and some on some of those occasions on Twitter and everything like that. And perhaps some of that criticism is warranted. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm wondering how healthy CJ Stroud was in this game because you and I both noticed up from a press box that a lot of times in between possessions, CJ was riding the exercise bike and we, we had seen him appear to be favoring something in his lower body after a hit at Maryland last week. He was, he was late coming out for interviews that game, which would suggest that he was probably getting some kind of treatment after the game. And so I don't know that because nothing was confirmed, but it does make me think that he he might've been dealing with some kind of injury. Cause I mean, the one time we, the one time he did run the ball, I mean, it was after like a very long, a lot of time in the pocket, nowhere to throw. And he looked very tentative even just running into the open field for six yards, I think it was. And so I, I do wonder if his health may have been a factor in that. But but yeah, I mean, it, it certainly does. Again, I mean, it, it, it validates some of the criticism that had been out there about CJ not using his legs as a running threat. And again, I don't know. I mean, how much of that was him? How much of that was Ryan Day? I mean, Ryan Day had said a few weeks ago after the Northwestern game that they typically don't want CJ to run the ball. But I mean, I had theorized at that time, I I thought they were saving that for Michigan. I mean, this was the kind of game that you're going to do whatever it takes to win. And obviously, for whatever reason, it it wasn't in the game plan. And I think you see the contrast of that when you watch Michigan and you see what McCarthy's running threat with his legs opens up for them. And then you contrast that with Ohio State not having that threat, it, it certainly does val- validate some of those concerns about not having that running threat at, at quarterback ultimately hurting the Ohio State offense. And you talk about the run threat. Let's get into some of the stuff with Ohio State's ground game here, because obviously in the latter half of the season, the injury situation at running back with Travion Henderson and Mayan Williams has been such a big storyline. And the run game in general for Ohio State coming into this one was a huge storyline. Think about last year, Ohio State finished with, I believe, 64 yards on 30 carries against Michigan. Not going to get the job done in a, in a game that's historically so physical, and especially last year in the elements there. I think in the first quarter alone, Ohio State had more rushing yards in this game than it had in the 2020, the 2021 game. But but that didn't result in, a, in the result that Ohio State ultimately wanted. But Dan, I think the weirdest thing about the game was so Henderson was out after not looking healthy against Maryland. I, I I felt like I saw that coming just because he ended the game in a walking boot. Ian Williams comes back. He only takes eight carries though. I'm clear, I don't think he's clearly he's not still a hundred percent healthy right now. So we I think we all thought that we would see a, a steady diet of Dallin Hayden, given that he had just gone for over a hundred yards in back to back games while those two other guys were dealing with injuries. He only gets two two carries, Dan, for seven yards in that game. I think that was surprising to a lot of people. And we end up seeing Chip Tranum come in. He had only taken one carry before this game for Ohio State. He comes in and gets the lion's share of, of handoffs for Ohio State, 14 for 84 yards. Averaged 5.9 yards per carry, so a, definitely a productive day for him. He had some, some very nice runs. He had a 24-yarder in there as well. But I just think the run game just didn't have the, the capacity to, to save Ohio State 
once the defense started giving up points and, and the, the offense started shooting itself in the foot there in the second half. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely was surprising that Hayden was such a minimal part of the game plan. But, I mean, Chip Traynham played well. I mean, Chip Traynham averaged 5.9 yards per carry. So I don't think Chip Traynham was the problem. I, I definitely don't think the running game or the offensive line is a problem. I think the offensive line was maybe Ohio State's best unit against against Michigan, despite some of the criticisms that had been levied there. And so I don't think like the performance of a running game was a problem in this game. I think you could question, okay, should should Ohio State maybe have committed to the run game more, especially early in the game when it was working? Because as you mentioned, I mean, late in the game, Ohio State really didn't have a choice but to pass the ball because they fell behind and they're running out of time and they're they're trying to get back in the game. And so that's why you ultimately see 48 passing attempts versus 29 rushing attempts. But should Ohio State have maybe committed more to the run game earlier in the game? I think that would be a valid question. Yeah, I certainly think so. It started to seem like one of those games where you know, early on, it was like, man, Tranum's really producing when he's getting carries right now. I, I thought they could have fed him a little bit more. Perhaps I've taught, we've already mentioned it, the, that that fourth down play when they, they went to Cade Stover, I thought the run game seemed to be working pretty well at that point. Perhaps you run the ball there instead of going to a one-on-one with a, a tight end that's covered pretty well there downfield. And Dan, we'll get back to in a, in a couple of minutes here, what this game kind of means for Ryan Day in, in the immediate uh, future here. But I just want to touch on on CJ Stroud one more time because it's it's really interesting because I think most people would 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 put the blame on Ryan Day much more so than a CJ Stroud if you're trying to to point the finger somewhere in terms of reasons for the loss here. But I, I thought it was so interesting about Stroud coming into this game, and that's why I wrote about it and, and how much was at stake for him individually in this game because we all expect him to go pro after the season, and and if that's the case then Stroud's going to leave Ohio State despite being such a star for the Buckeyes, playing so excellent on so many occasions, record-breaking performances, things like that. But he's going to end up not having a pair of gold pants with the Buckeyes. I mean, even, even the 2020 year, his true freshman year, he didn't even get to be a part of a of, a, of an Ohio State win over Michigan because the, the game was was canceled that year. And now he's, he's also not going to have a a Big Ten championship on his resume as a starter for the Buckeyes. He, he may yet have the opportunity to play in the CFP. We'll talk about that a little bit more later as well. But those are those are big things that that a lot of quarterbacks have done, especially when you talk about his recent pre- predecessors and their ability to beat Michigan and, and win Big Ten titles. And he's is not going to be able to do either of those things. And then you, you throw on top of that the fact that if, if, if Stroud throws for 350 yards in, in a couple of touchdowns, and Ohio State beats Michigan, I think we're talking about him as the favorite to win the Heisman Trophy. And, and, and now after that performance, I think it's pretty clear that that, that is not going to happen this year. Yeah, I mean, it, it's complicated with, with C.J. Stroud, right? Because, I mean, you look at his stats. I mean, he's basically second in terms of career stats in, in most of the major categories for Ohio State passers. I mean, he's statistically undoubtedly one of the best passers that – Ohio State has ever had, and he certainly was for the past two years. But I, I think you can also look at it, and if, if if we assume for a moment that Ohio State doesn't make the college football playoff, which also would likely mean that C.J. Stroud has played his final game as a Buckeye, as he likely won't play in a non-playoff bowl game. I think he ends his two years at Ohio State without that signature accomplishment, right? Like I think he he's had a great career. He's been one of the best quarterbacks in college football 
for the past two years. He'll have big 10 awards and stuff like that. But I think he just doesn't, he doesn't have that signature win. I mean, the closest thing I think he has to a signature win would be the Rose Bowl victory. And he was, he was spectacular in that game. But I, I think just the reality is that Rose Bowl is viewed as a consolation prize now and you don't make the playoffs. So I think that's probably the game that he'll be remembered most for as a Buckeye. Again, if Ohio State doesn't make the CFP here, but I think he just doesn't have that, again, that quote unquote Heisman moment that he needed here the last two years. I mean, he went into the, the Michigan game as a front runner to win the Heisman both years. And because Ohio State lost, that didn't end up happening. And so I, I, I think it, it's hard I mean, to, to, to judge a guy based on the team's result in a pair of games is difficult because I don't think he's the reason why Ohio State lost either of those games. But I think, again, I think particularly if you look at this year's game, you know, we talk about the offense was not in rhythm in the second half. And I don't think he did anything to elevate Ohio State necessarily. I mean, he made a few really nice throws in the game, but overall, I don't think his play was at a level where it could elevate Ohio State to where it would have a chance to win a game it was otherwise going to lose. And so I think I think that when, when we think about where C.J. Shroud ranks among the all-time greats in Ohio State history, I, I do think it hurts him that he doesn't necessarily have that signature win when we've seen guys like Justin Fields and, and, and Dwayne Haskins and J.T. Barrett really step up in those rivalry games and other big games. I just don't know if C.J. quite has that on his resume. And I think that may hurt his standing in terms of where he ultimately ranks among Ohio state's all-time great quarterbacks. It's the first time they've won back-to-back games over Ohio state since 99 and 2000. The first time they've won a game at Ohio stadium since 2000, that is a long time, Dan. I mean, for, for most of my life, I, I remember Ohio state beating Michigan handily year after year. And now that has, has suddenly changed in a hurry here. Dan, let me take you back to 2021 Big Ten Media Days, and you just remember the the line of questioning of Jim Harbaugh and the Michigan players at the time, but particularly Harbaugh, it's like he's sitting there getting grilled by the media. He's pretty much getting memed all over the place on the internet, laughing stock in some regards. I don't want to go too far with, with, with all of that, but I mean, he's a guy that a lot of pundits and, and, and people like that are, are taking shots at. And when you lose to Ohio State that many times in a row, I mean, it, it, it makes sense, but but he is a guy that's got a big smile on his face right now because he has made a lot of Ohio State fans eat their words and maybe even made Ryan Day eat some words of his own in these last two years here. And just what do you how big is this for Michigan and and what they're building here as now they're going into their second straight Big Ten championship game with the chance to head into the CFP as an undefeated 13 and 0 team? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of Michigan fans were cheering when Jim Harbaugh got an extension a few years ago because he started off 0-5 against Ohio State, and it seemed like Ohio State really had his number. And now I think a lot of Ohio State fans are are hoping Jim Harbaugh will decide to bolt for the NFL because we, we've seen it now that he he's seized control of this rivalry. I mean, and, and I, we were talking about it a little bit. I mean, I, I've been covering Ohio State on a full-time basis for six years now, but I'd say I've personally been following the program pretty closely since around 2010, 2011, because I grew up in Massachusetts. I didn't, until I decided I was going to go to Ohio State, I wasn't necessarily following Ohio State football all that closely. But in the years that I've been following Ohio State, this is the first time where it really feels like Michigan has surpassed Ohio State. Like last year, 
was a bad game for Ohio State. Two games is a trend. And so now it, it, it feels like we're in this place where, you know, for so many years, it was what does Michigan need to do to have a chance to beat Ohio State? And now it's what does Ohio State have to do if it's going to start beating Michigan again? And so it, it feels like the script on this rivalry has really been flipped all of a sudden and to where now Michigan has got this thing figured out. I mean, they're looking at likely back-to-back Big Ten championships and likely back-to-back college football playoff berths. And those are the things Ohio State expects to to win every year. And so it certainly feels like to seize control of this rivalry. And I know some of us were, were talking about it this week. And it's like, if you had to pick right now, would you pick Michigan to win next year? And I think my honest answer, if I had to pick right now, would be, yeah, I, I would probably pick Michigan to win next year because, I mean, for a couple reasons for that. I mean, one, I know Michigan's going to have J.J. McCarthy back and Ohio State's not going to have C.J. Stroud back. And we really don't know what Ohio State's going to look like necessarily with a new quarterback. They've got some big questions regarding offensive line, potentially some other big question marks, too, depending on who else decides to go go pro after this season. And next year's game is going to be in Ann Arbor. And it just feels like Michigan has seized control of this rivalry right now. Now, that's not to say that Ohio State can't quickly swing it back if it goes and wins the next couple of years, but it, there's just a different vibe now. I mean, I think for so many years, it was like, when is Michigan ever going to win again in this rivalry? Like it, until last year, I think there was such a feeling that Ohio State was the dominant team in this rivalry. Ohio State was recruiting so much better than Michigan. And it just seemed like there was a big gap between the programs. And now not only has that gap been closed, but Michigan has shown that it seems to now have the formula for beating Ohio State. And Ohio State now has to figure out the formula to beating Michigan. Yeah, Dan, and Bartholomew points out that Michigan hasn't beaten or Ohio State has not beaten Michigan since I joined the 11 Warriors staff. I will say, though, to push back on that, yeah, Garrick, uh, that is also true of Garrick and Chase Brown, our, our other two uh, members of the beat team besides Dan. So you can't put all that on me just saying. But yeah, Dan, it, the three years since I graduated high school covering this team, one of those was the COVID year, the ultimate anomaly, right? And then the two years since then, Ohio State has not beaten Michigan. So maybe I'm, I'm something of a of a, a bad luck charm for the Buckeyes, perhaps. But I think you can say that about some other people as well. But Dan, getting back to the actual game itself. And the future of this game, I mean, what do you see as the missing ingredient for Ohio State? Because now in back-to-back years, it hasn't necessarily been the same thing. We mentioned it was different problems in those two games. So do you feel like there's one glaring missing ingredient or is it more things that Ohio State's going to have to go back to the drawing board and figure out moving forward? Yeah, I think it's a little bit tough, tougher to assess this one than it was last year. Because I think last year it was like, okay, clearly they need to make changes on defense. Like the defense clearly was not good enough. We we knew they had to make changes there. We knew that a run game needed to be better on offense. This year, it's just, it, it's a little bit harder to pinpoint like, okay, what, what does Ohio state need to do to fix this? Like, again, do I think that they're going to go and clean house of a coaching staff? No, I don't. I mean, there could, there could certainly be changes. I mean, there, there usually are. And so my guess is the coaching staff next year, isn't going to be identical to the one that Ohio State has had this year. But I also think 
most likely the majority of of this year's coaching staff is going to be back next year. And so I, I think it's more of a little things that Ohio State's got to figure out now. It's not like, you know, there's one like super glaring weakness that needs to be better. It's, it's more that that big game execution. Because I think mean, we talked about it last week. Like I had said it like all along, like I would be shocked if Ohio State doesn't bring its A game against Michigan. And Ohio State didn't bring its A game against Michigan. So that is a thing that I look at and I go, why didn't that happen? Like, why wasn't Ohio State able to elevate its game and play its best football of the year in the game that it knew all year long was going to make or break its season? I mean, we saw Michigan pull out all the stops. I mean, we, we, we had thought that Ohio State was going to have all these wrinkles for this game. And I think there were a couple, but Michigan had more of them. And, and it seemed like Michigan was the team that really elevated its game and played its best football of the year when everything was on the line. And I think for Ohio State, I think we had been lulled into this idea that like they were saving something for Michigan, that there was a there was a level to Ohio State that we hadn't seen yet. And that didn't show up against Michigan. And so I, I think the number one thing they've got to figure out is just, OK, what does it take to get back? Because I think that's what we consistently saw under Urban Meyer is when Ohio State got to the Michigan game. I mean, they had some flawed teams, but when it when it came time to the, the Michigan game, whether that was 2018 or 2016 or whatever, it, it seemed like Ohio State always rose to the occasion to those games that they they took it to another level in that biggest game of the year. And and that just hasn't happened the last couple of years. And I think certainly a lot of people are going to point to Ryan Day here and say, is the, is the culture just not the same as it was with Urban Meyer and Jim Trestle? Or are maybe maybe things need to be a little bit tougher on the players than they have been. So they really are, are pushed harder to be at their best in this game. One thing that I also wonder about is obviously Ohio State wants to assemble the, as much talent as possible. but is there maybe a little bit of something lost when so much of a team is from outside Ohio and you have a lot of key players on the team who did not grow up around the rivalry and to them you can tell the players how important the game is. You, they can say all the right things about how important it is, but if they haven't grown up in it, do they necessarily fully understand like how big the game is does it truly mean something more to them or is it a means to an end toward whether it be of a college football playoff trying to get there or the nfl trying trying to get there i mean i don't expect ohio state to suddenly start recruiting a bunch of three stars from ohio over five stars from all around the country but it, it's just one thing I wonder about where have, you know, a lot of players that are very highly recruited coming from all over the country. And quite frankly, Ohio State is often losing its best players after just three years, whereas maybe Michigan has more of those four and five year guys. I, I think you could certainly say that it, it would certainly seem the last couple of years that Michigan's player development has been better than Ohio State because Michigan has achieved more with less highly touted recruits. And so it would seem that Michigan's player development has been stronger than Ohio State 
for the last couple of years, at least in terms of how that yields results on the field in in games. And I think it's certainly fair to say that when Ohio State is not beating Michigan, not beating the Big Ten championship game with a roster that I think everybody would agree is a top two or three roster in, in college football in terms of talent, that Ohio State is underachieving right now. And there's something that's not quite there for Ohio State to be at its best with all the talent that it has. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to be said about the fact that the rivalry game, as big as it as it is and has always been, for so many years, it just seemed like we've like we've talked about just like a, a foregone conclusion that Ohio State would beat Michigan. And you just have to wonder the impact of assuming you're going to beat Michigan year year in and year out. And then you talk about the the impact of not having the game in 2020. So a lot of a lot of guys in the 2021 game being first time starters, their first experience in that game and how all of those factors coincide with that. But I'll tell you one thing, Dan, if there are players that that didn't don't fully understand the rivalry or things like that, you have to think that back to back losses and particularly this year with it happening at home, Michigan planting the flag at the middle of the field at Ohio Stadium and the reaction and the criticism from the Ohio State fan base and, and across the country and stuff is I think that's going to wake a, a lot of guys up if they don't already fully grasp the the rivalry and things like that. So I know we both agree, and I think rational people agree that Ryan Day isn't getting fired this year. I know that there's a, a fire Ryan Day movement out there on, on social media and the people who are convinced that Ohio State is never going to beat Michigan again with Ryan Day, but that's not going to happen right now. I mean, I mean, Ohio State is 45 and five with, with, with Ryan Day as head coach. I mean, they, they've won, not, not including 2020 because of COVID. I mean, they've won at least 11 games every year that he's been the head coach. He, he he's not he's not getting fired. It's it's not it's not going to happen right now. But I I do think it's a fair question to say does this put him on the hot seat entering next year and should it? I mean, it's just a third straight loss to Michigan would be a, a tough pill to swallow and but the thing is it's it's that's a long ways away where that would be projecting a ways out. And I, I, while I, I think both of us don't feel great right in this moment, you know, about Ohio state's chances in next year's matchup. But of course that's on the heels of this game and everything like that, that, that narrative could completely be flipped by going into the game next year. But I mean, I certainly am, am nowhere near as gung ho about, about Ryan day needing to be on the hot seat or anything like that. As a lot of fans are next year though, after a, th- a third straight loss, if that's to be the case, there could be a different discussion, but I just don't think you, you just don't, you don't just abandon ship after a big loss, even if it's a loss of this magnitude, because Ohio State was still 11 and no. Ohio State could still, Dan, make right. it into the CFP this very season. So it's still on the table. Ohio State could win the national championship this season, although it may be a long shot, but it's still on the table. So I think it'd be a different, a different story if Ohio State was coming into that game with three losses or something like that. Right, right. And I, I mean, I mean, it would be unprecedented for a coach to be barring something happening off the field. I mean, it would be unprecedented for a coach to be fired with a resume that Ryan Day has put up in, in four years. And so, yeah, I mean, he, he's definitely not getting fired right now. And, and I still don't, I think when we talk about the hot seat, like, I, 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 I don't think he's on the hot seat in the sense of if he loses to Michigan next year, he's absolutely getting fired. I, I don't, I don't think that's, 
the case. But I, I certainly think the pressure is going to be ratchet up on it, ratchet up on him now. I mean, to be one and two against Michigan. Now, I think it's important to give context to that. Woody Hayes started one and two against Michigan. So I think patience is sometimes a virtue here. I mean, we talked about Jim Harbaugh. Jim Harbaugh was 0-5 against Michigan. I mean, I I was looking at a tweet that I stumbled upon the other day from Mike Greenberg from ESPN, and it was it was after the fifth loss to Ohio State 2019. It's like, it was something along the lines of, when will when will Jim Harbaugh beat Ohio State? I think it's now safe to say never. Well, we, we saw how that happened. And so one thing I know about Gene Smith as Ohio State's athletic director is He's not in a reactionary individual. He's not somebody who's going to make a decision solely based on emotion. And so they're not going to, I mean, because then the other part of a question too becomes, okay, let's say you did fire Ryan Day. Well, who are you going to get that's this clear upgrade over Ryan Day? I mean, I've seen people saying Mike Vrabel. I don't, I don't think Mike Vrabel wants to, wants to coach in college, quite honestly. I, I, I cannot picture Mike Vrabel being the guy who wants to deal with NIL and recruiting. I think he's probably happy in, in the NFL. And so I, I think, I, I would say this, I think it's far more likely that Ryan Day is coaching Ohio State two years from now than it is that he won't be. But, you know, I think to your point, we talk about hot seat going into next year. You know, who knows what will happen? I mean, if Ohio State goes nine and three next year and loses to Michigan, then I think it becomes a very real conversation about does Ohio State need to make a head coaching change? Again, we're not predicting that's going to happen. We, we we don't know what's going to happen next year. And I think, as, as you talked about, this season's not over yet. And so I think we got to get through this season first before we can really talk about next year. But I, I, I do think that certainly the, the pressure is going to be there on Ryan Day. And it's something that he he's going to feel. And I'm sure it's going to be made clear to him from a variety of sources that going one and two against Michigan is not acceptable at Ohio State and going one and three against Michigan would be even more unacceptable. Yeah, and Dan, I know a lot of fans aren't really ready to move past the Michigan loss as of yet. And even I know a lot of people were rolling their eyes, perhaps at the the CFP talk and the fact that Ohio State could still go backdoor into the playoff here. But Dan, it's the reality. It's it's the it's a fact of the matter that if USC loses against Utah, a team it's already lost to the season in the Pac-12 championship, it seems very likely that Ohio State, who who came in at number two, or number number two, my God, number five in the polls on uh, after the game, and we assume recording this before the CFP, the, the newest CFP rankings that Ohio State's going to come in at number five, a loss for, for USC or even perhaps TCU, although perhaps a, a tougher situation there, not as not quite as straightforward. Ohio State could could sneak in to the CFP. But Dan, I guess that begs the question, what Ohio, does Ohio State deserve to be in the CFP in your eyes? No, but does Ohio State deserve to be in the CFP more than any team not currently ranked in the top four? Yes. So I mean, that, that's the reason why we're having this conversation. I mean, because again, I mean, you talk about, I mean, right now, I mean, I think if, if Georgia, Michigan, TCU and USC all win this weekend, then they're clearly the top four. They're clearly the four teams that belong in the playoff. And, and there's no controversy whatsoever. I think, like you said, I mean, I mean, I think Georgia and Michigan are basically locks at this point because I I, I don't think there's any way you would put Ohio State in over Georgia or Michigan. I think it's if TCU or USC loses that things get interesting, but particularly USC because 
USC, if it loses to Utah again this weekend, would have two losses. And no two-loss team has ever made the CFP. And so I, I've always said on that point, I'll believe a two-loss team makes the CFP when I see it. And so my hunch would be that if USC loses, that Ohio State is going to make the college football playoff. I mean, like my personal honest opinion would be that I don't know that Ohio State would even deserve to make the CFP over USC in that situation because USC would basically be getting punished for playing an extra game while Ohio State is watching from home. And so I, I think there's a very valid argument you can make that the teams that are the top four, Georgia, Michigan, TCU, and UC, like they should be the top four no matter what happens this weekend because there's just not another team outside of that top four that actually truly belongs in the CFP this year. But I, I think if USC loses, that it's most likely that o Ohio State is going to get one of those four spots. And I think and I think with TCU, I think it potentially gets interesting. I think if, if T again, I think you could definitely make a case that TCU, even if a loss, deserves in over Ohio State. But for resume they have, they'd only have one loss. But I, I think that either of those teams losing definitely opens the door for Ohio State. And again, there's nobody behind them who would have any real case to make the CFP because all the other teams have lost at least two games. And so I think we we, we had talked about it early in the year about the possibility of the Big Ten getting two games in. I think that is a very real possibility. And I think the reason why is because enough has broken the Big Ten's way to where there's just not a lot of the teams we talked about over the course of the year. Clemson's out of it after losing again. LSU's out of it after losing again. He's out of it. And so there's just not, there's only, there's really only five teams left in this thing. And that means Ohio State does go into this weekend with a very real chance, even though Ohio State won't be playing this weekend. But Dan, the question becomes now, will USC or TCU lose in your opinion? And if those things happen, will Ohio State make it in? I mean, how do you think that this is all going to shape out in the, the conference championship weekend here? You know what? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say TCU. TCU has seemingly found a way to win all year, even in games when it's looked like it's going to fall. And so I'm going to say TCU finds a way and gets it done against Kansas State. And I'm going to say USC wins the rematch against Utah and that they both make the playoff. I I would not be shocked at all if if either TCU or, or USC lost. And if I think and I think if it if they do fit, it's going to be a very interesting weekend to see how things unfold for Ohio State. But if I just have to make a prediction, I, I'm going to say that that chalk holds this weekend, that the top four teams win and Ohio State likely goes on to play Washington in the Rose Bowl. Yeah, Dan, I, I can't say that I'm too far off from that opinion, although I should mention it's not like USC and TCU are, are massive favorites in these games. I mean, when I was looking at it the other day, USC was a 1.5 point favorite, I believe, over Utah and TCU, were like a 2.5 point favorite over Kansas State, despite beating them by a couple scores earlier on this season. And plenty to look forward to. And Ohio State fans, the season is not over yet. I know it seems like it. But the season is not over. Dan, should we get into some basketball talk here as we wrap things up? Because the season is starting to, to kick up a notch for the Buckeyes, especially on the, on the heels of that Maui Invitational appearance last week. Yeah, I'd say all in all, a, a good week for the Buckeyes last week in Maui, where Ohio State went 2-1, lost the first game to San Diego State, but then bounced back 
with wins over Cincinnati and Texas Tech. Texas Tech win, particularly impressive. Texas Tech was a ranked team. I'm not, I'm not sure if they're still ranked, but they were ranked going into that game. And I think particularly Justice Suing, impressive in that game as he had a monster 33-point game in Ohio State's win over Red Raiders. Yeah, 23 points in the second half, more points than he had scored in any entire game previously for the Buckeyes. That was certainly the one. Dan, I was looking at the, his previous four games before that game. He was shooting like 29% from the field, averaging less than nine points a game. So that was definitely one where you could say, okay, maybe he has shaken some rust off moving forward. But Dan, I think another guy that a lot of people are talking about about Ohio State, especially when, because I'm not able to, to necessarily watch the broadcast when I'm there covering the games at, at Value City Arena at the shot, but but watching some of those ESPN broadcasts in Maui, the pundits and commentators and stuff, super high on Bryce Sensabaugh talking about him as really one of the most underrated freshman prospects in the country, one of the toughest matchups in college basketball right now, which is a lot of praise. And I think a lot of it's deserving because the true freshman is Ohio State's leading scorer, averaging 15.8 points per game through the first six. And he still hasn't started a game, Dan, but I think it's clear at this point that we should be keeping an eye on him to perhaps replicate that Malachi Branham trajectory in terms of being a one and done because we saw it happen just last year. And Bryce Sensabaugh is already far more productive through this stage last year in Malachi Branham's career and when you compare those guys one-to-one. Yeah, as as our loyal listeners know, I've been very high on Bryce Sensabaugh. For months now, I've, I've predicted that he would be one of Ohio State's top scorers this year, but I didn't expect this. I didn't expect that he would be Ohio State's leading scorer six games into his career and that he'd be averaging almost 16 points per game. And so I think those are becoming very real conversations already. Probably not conversations that... Chris Holtman wants to be real right now because I think he's been very much hoping that this this freshman class will be one that sticks around for years and he can keep them together and build with them. But I think the 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 natural scoring ability we're seeing from from Bryce Sensabaugh is making that a, a real conversation, which could be bad for the future, but it's good for this year that he's becoming that kind of guy because I think definitely been I think definitely the expectation from Chris Holtman entering the season was that scoring would be a lot more by committee this year. And I think it still is going to be. And, and obviously, again, it's you know, we, we, we've seen freshmen have great starts and then hit that freshman wall. And so we don't want to get ahead of ourselves of Bryce Sensabaugh too much. But it, it's been a very promising start. And if he can continue to play like this, Justice Suing can build off that performance that he had against Texas Tech. And he can continue to be a consistent double-double guy. Then, 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 then this team has got some top line players that is going to give Ohio state a chance to have a really good season. I think a lot of people are wondering why Bryce Sensabaugh isn't starting right now, given his numbers. I think the, the easy question or the easy answer to that is he, his, his defensive prowess is not quite up to the, the standard of his offensive play. Now I think there, there definitely is a conversation to be had about getting him into the starting lineup. I know Chris Holman said that he's looking to, to play Sensabaugh more moving forward anyway, whether that, results in him cracking the starting five or not. I think the two guys you would look at there in terms of him potentially jumping a guy would be a Sean McNeil or an Isaac Likely. Now, and specifically with, with McNeil, you look at McNeil and Sensabaugh might be the two best three-point shooters that, that play regularly for the Buckeyes, at least the most high-volume three-point shooters. And, and Sensabaugh is knocking down threes at a, at a higher clip than McNeil now, I believe. So, so that could be kind of a a reason to get him in the lineup, given that McNeil hasn't been as productive. But I will say to McNeil's credit, 
he really did start finding himself there, settling in for the Buckeyes in Maui. He had a 22-point game against San Diego State, a quiet night against Cincinnati, despite the blowout win for the Buckeyes. And then I think a 13-point game against Texas Tech. So that was a very positive sign for Ohio State. Isaac, likely the, the statistical production has not been there, but that's just a, a guy that that kind of ties everything together for the Buckeyes. And I know we were literally just looking at a, a clip in, in Slack of him, just some things that he does when he doesn't have the ball that don't show up in the stat sheet that that are are, are very beneficial for the Buckeyes. Yeah, and I, I don't think we were ever expecting Isaac likely to be a leading scorer on this team. I think the expectation was always that he would be a defensive guy, a rebounding kind of guy, a guy who does a lot of those little things off the ball well. And so that that makes me think that it's probably less likely that likely will lose his starting job because I think the things he brings to them defensively are things that Chris Holtman really likes. But I think the, the good news is I think they have the ability to play a lot of different lineups right now. With Bryce said coming off the bench, maybe he ends up being a starter at some point. Tanner Holden, another guy who's still coming off the bench. He's been up and down, but we know that he at least has that ability to be a weapon as a scorer. One guy you didn't mention as a guy who starting spot would be in any jeopardy would be Bruce Fortin. And I think that, again, you talk about guys finding themselves in Maui. I think we saw that from Bruce Fortin as well, where he really seems to be coming into his own as a point guard, as a true freshman. Yeah, for sure. I think he he averaged uh, like 12 points per game or 13 or something like that in Maui in those three games, I think it was. And so another promising sign for the Buckeyes. And I think that's why right now that this team really impressed me more than I than I thought it, it might in Maui. And really just the, the depth of the lineup. And I really like this this roster a little bit better than, than some in years past, just because it, it has proven to be true that on any given night, one guy from this this very versatile team can step up and have a big night. And that was the, the the kind of the narrative coming in, but sometimes that doesn't end up happening. And what happens if you don't have that 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 go to option? But so far, we have seen that different guys can be the go to option, and I think that's what's impressed me the most. Another big test for Ohio State basketball this week, playing on the road at Duke tonight on on Wednesday night. We saw last year Ohio State football lost to Michigan, and the following week, the basketball Buckeyes followed up with a win over Duke. Do they get it done again this year? I'm skeptical just because, you know, it's in it's in Cameron Indoor. That's a that's a tough place to play. Ohio State's never won there as, as far as I know from looking at the, the history of that series there. But I should say, I think Duke just fell like nine places in the AP poll or something like that. They suffered, I think it was a 19-point loss to Purdue, which was their, their most lopsided loss since 2020. So it's not as though Duke is coming in as an absolute juggernaut right now. Ohio State has some momentum of its own, so we will see how that plays out on Wednesday, although I'm, I, I am skeptical that Ohio State actually gets the job done. I'm going to be the Ohio State optimist here. I, I'm going to say Ohio State beats Duke again this year. I think Duke Duke has looked pretty beatable so far. They've got a young young team that's still coming together. So I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to pick Ohio State. It's probably an upset, but I'm going to go ahead and pick Ohio State to get the win on Wednesday. We'll see how it plays out. Certainly another game that we're going to learn a lot about this Ohio State uh, men's basketball team from after an informative week in Maui. Uh, Ohio State women's basketball, got to give them a shout out as well. They are also uh, continuing to have a fantastic season. Still ranked fourth in the country. 6-0 and record. They've, they've really dominated everybody they've played. They're currently leading the NCAA with 29.8 turnovers forced per game. Big test of their own coming up on Wednesday night, foes. They'll also be playing in the ACC Big Ten Challenge on the road at Louisville. If you factor in the road 
maybe the biggest test they faced all year, along with their season opener against Tennessee. J.C. Sheldon, it was their best player, has also missed Ohio State's last two games with an injury. And so she's not able to go against Louisville. That will make it an even bigger test. But those Buckeyes have had a phenomenal season so far. will be interesting to see how they fare against Louisville and what I think will certainly be a, a telling game about where those Buckeyes are so far this season. Yeah, Dan, and if, if if fans out there have given up on the, the football season, there are alternative Buckeye teams to watch that are doing pretty well right now on the hardwood, especially. But football will play at least one more game when we meet with you again next week on RealPod Wednesday. We will know whether that will be a college football playoff semifinal or a non-playoff bowl game. And so we'll be back next week to talk about how it all unfolds this weekend and start looking ahead to whatever's next for Ohio State. So thanks for listening in and hope you join us again next week.